but just feeling a lot of guilt and shame mm. about being white because it was very clear that to be white was to be in power and, and that power was wrong and that and that there was so much violence that was enacted and I was a part of that legacy, I was a part of that history. Then I started to discover that white supremacy is really taken from all of us in a different kind of way. It's disconnection from our bodies, it's disconnection from each other, it's disconnection from other white people, it's disconnection from people of color. It really tears us away from belonging. This is Healing Justice, a podcast bridging conversations at the intersections of collective healing and social change. I'm your host, Kate Warning, and this week's episode is about white ancestral healing. All people are more than welcome to listen to what we're talking about this week, but be aware that this episode will be very focused on the white folks. I'm talking with Yardena Peacock and Kelly Germain Strickland, who teach on the topic of white anti-racism as a spiritual practice. We talk about faith and spirituality, white fragility, the complexity of ancestry and ancestral healing, and why white people gotta love each other more if we're gonna do this dismantling white supremacy thing right. But before we dive all the way into the conversation, I have a little update for you from the podcast. So this week, our podcast production team circled up and decided that we're trying out a new idea to raise support for the podcast and also include more of your voices from the community. You've heard me talk about how we have a commitment to keeping all of our content free, Many podcasts have subscription-only content, which means that you only get the resources if you can pay for them. But we want these practices and ideas to be accessible to all people, so we don't do that. Many of you have been generously supporting out of the goodness of your heart on Patreon with a monthly pledge at patreon.com slash healingjustice. And we are super grateful for you and need a lot more of that in order to get sustainable. But now we're going to be introducing another sort of fun and different way that you can join in and support and also raise your voice. So we're going to try out a new segment each week called Affirmations. And this is a time for us to feature community voices and words, to uplift people, organizations, or communities that are embodying the values of healing justice where you're at. So for a $35 donation to support the podcast, you can submit your own personal shout out to spread love. And this segment is not about promotion to promote workshops or actions or websites or anything like that but is really a space for a public gratitude. So almost like how you would hear an ad on a podcast, but instead of trying to sell you stuff, we are celebrating and community building. So if you want to submit a community love affirmation to be played in a future episode, you can head to healingjustice.org and look for the button to submit an affirmation. And you can hear a model of what one might sound like at the end of this episode. Um, I'm going to do one as a demo. And we'll try it out together and see if it sticks. Um, As my housemate Manolo here in my collective house in Brooklyn always says, it's just a prototype. So we're going to try it out and hopefully generate uh, the ability to hear more of your voices and celebrate uh, different acts and embodiments of healing justice across the country. So, Yardena Peacock is a Southern-based writer, a spiritual teacher, and a healer living in Louisville, Kentucky. She is the director of Liberation School, which is a healing and spirituality school for changemakers working to center healing and spirituality in movements. And if you heard episode 11 called Voices from Liberation School, you already got a sense of that project. Kelly Germain Strickland is a trauma therapist and a plant-based healer living in Cincinnati, Ohio. She works with changemakers and institutions to heal from and dismantle systems of oppression. 
And together, Yardena and Kelly teach a course online called Practice Showing Up, Anti-Racist Spirituality. So let's dive into what they have to say. Thanks for being here with us. Here we go. Welcome, Kelly and Yardena. How y'all doing? I'm doing really well. <laughs> Good to be here with you <laughs> yes. all. Good morning. So we are sitting here in Chicago, Illinois, in the neighborhood of Boys Town, and uh, hanging out in a hotel room right after this powerful weekend of attending the Mystic Soul Conference, um, which we'll put the link in the show notes so people can check it out. It's a super powerful people of color centered conference around spirituality. And it was cool to be here with our team from Liberation School for y'all who've been listening to the podcast um, and might have heard episode 11, Voices from Liberation School. Our team uh, was here participating in Mystic Soul. And it really feels like the right time to have a conversation about uh, being white folks in the work coming out of a people of color centered space where we were welcomed to be present and part of that community, but experienced such an alternative to our mainstream dominant culture of centering whiteness, right? Where as white folks, we were welcomed to be fully present, but we weren't, our experience wasn't centered as the default. Um, and it was powerful for me to be in that space and also just feels like the right time to ask y'all about the really deep work that you've been doing with white people um, of your own stories and then now together. And um, I'd love to just start by welcoming like what it has been in your own life that has led you to your own reflection and healing process around whiteness that would even begin to motivate you to want to do that with other people. Um, so maybe it makes sense to start with you, Kelly, of like, what about your journey as a white woman has brought you to even want to have this conversation? Yeah. So my journey has been going on for a while, but I would say it really started to crystallize um, in Durham, North Carolina, when I began uh, working together with a church um, called Citywell. And um, we were trying to come together as a multiracial group of people who were going to focus on, um, in the beginning, it was kind of like our, you know, communities are so segregated. We want to be diverse and inclusive. There was a lot of naivete on white people's end around what it looks like to come together in a multiracial way. Um, and there was just so much pain and trauma. And I remember sitting in a room and uh, it, was a, it was a house church at the time, so we didn't have a space. So we just moved from house to house and sitting in one of the pastor's homes. And um, we were talking about what it means to, to do this work and just cultural sharing and being in the space together. And I just kind of, you know, blissfully, ignorantly said, you know, well, it's just like, it's this, to me, it was this even trade of like, you know, I'm sharing my culture with other people, they're sharing with me. Uh, and this woman of color was like, that's just really not how it is, you know, and she it started to awaken me to the fact that um, being uh, a woman of color in the world means that she constantly is living under a dominant white narrative, dominant white culture. And I had never thought about that before. I also had never really thought about my racial identity. I knew I was white, but I didn't really know what that meant. Um, and it was through that faith community then that um, we started to say we needed to be trained, we needed to understand um, what racism has done to white people, what racism has done to different people of color. Um, and it was in our training with the Racial Equity Institute based out of Greensboro, North Carolina. It's a two-day workshop, um, their phase one, where I started to get the history of like the who, what, when, where, why, how of whiteness. Mm. and. Um, I never, I knew I was white, but I didn't really know what that meant. Like, what is white? When was, was it like created? Is it biological? Like I had heard all these different things about it. Um, and that's when my healing journey really began. And I remember sitting in that workshop and really feeling like scales had just fallen from my eyes. I remember just sobbing mm. deeply. Um, to, it felt like my whole world, um, they say it was like taking the matrix pill where it felt like everything around me felt like a different reality. Like I had just come online. Mm. Um, and, 
And so that's, that was kind of the crystallization of my journey. And from that point, uh, I just knew that my life was never going to be the same and that this was like a lifetime healing journey for me. Mm. That was really powerful, Kelly. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I love when you were talking about, um, I didn't even know I was white. And I think that was like definitely like my experience growing up in a, in a white liberal household that really taught me to be colorblind, mm -hmm. you know, and not to yeah. see color. And going to a multiracial, a very multiracial grade school and high school um, where race wasn't really like central. It was just like, we're just people, you know, and then bringing home a boyfriend at one point who was black and not mm. like saying anything about that he was black. And when he, when he left, my mom coming up to me and saying, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you prepare me mm. that he was black? Mm. And feeling so confused. Yeah. Like, oh, I thought, <laughs> you know, I thought color didn't matter, you know? Um, and I remember going to Brazil actually with that same partner and in Brazil like beginning to to understand a deepening of of inequality um who were the who were what did the folks look like who were you know in the condos um you know in uh and who were the folks who were in the favelas you know in the in the outskirts of the city and then returning home to over the Rhine because was living in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is where Kelly lives now. <laughs> returning to over the Rhine, which you know is this the center, like the city center, um, where I lived, and and kind of seeing that same replication. Yeah. Of it was you know the white folks who were living in the in the lofts and the you know revitalized um, places and you know and it's the people of color who are who are on the streets and like. And just like that dichotomy. Um, yeah. But it was, I think it was really, uh, you know, I think I really grappled with like trying to be in the world and not really landing and like understanding like what it means to be a white person. But just feeling a lot of guilt and shame mm -hmm. about being white because it was very clear that to be white was to be in power, to be... you know, and, and that power was wrong and that, and that there was so much violence that was enacted. And I was a part of that legacy. I was a part of that history. And when I met an undergraduate, um, I met a woman by the name of Ann Braden, who was from Louisville, Kentucky. And she was my professor for a civil rights class. And I remember coming into the class and everybody sitting around in a circle you know, waiting for our professor to arrive. And at the time, I didn't know who Ann Braden was. And some of the folks did. And it was a somewhat, like, multiracial space. Um, it was an honors course. Uh, and there, I mean, it was mostly white, though. And, like, she walks in. I was, didn't even know what to expect. And she walks in. She had, like, these big glasses. And she was really short <laughs> and, like, really skinny, you know. And she just kind of, like, walked in and like sat down and we had like a book and everything. And she was like, yeah, let's just put that aside, that book. <laughs> and starts just telling stories, like movement stories and starts talking about whiteness mm. and starts talking about, yeah, as white people, you know, we need to, we need to make a choice about how we're gonna be white in this world. And we can either be a part of continuing this white supremacy or we can be a part of dismantling it. And like, you have to choose which America you're gonna live in. And then she asked us to do this exercise, this writing exercise. She said, okay, now I want you to take a moment and write down when was the first time you realized racism existed. Mm. And so we all did that. And the first moment that came to my mind was the, was the story I just shared about bringing my boyfriend home who was black, you know? And I struggled because I was like, really? Is there not a story that's like sooner yeah. than that? And 
when we were sharing, you know, it was very clear, like the people of color stories, I mean, it started very young. And for white people, it was like a much later story Mm -hmm. of of coming to know that. But what Anne did is that she, she took me out of my guilt and shame and and gave me the action to step into the embodiment, the language, and like the place to like step into and to start to love myself as a white person and love other white people in a different kind of way and not to continue to like live in the guilt and shame and invisibilize and just feel like I'm just violence. My very being is violence. And so let me just like take myself out of this world. Yeah. She gave me a place to like step into the world and like build the kind of world that, you know, that we need. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really amazing. And I, a question that it brings up for me is like, I feel like a lot of the, the rhetoric that I hear in white anti-racist spaces is about the choice that we have to make and that as white folks, like it's our job to mobilize our, our privilege and put our bodies on the line. And so there's like a very direct call to action around taking responsibility for that realization that comes really too little too late around how race works in our society for white folks. Um, that like the way that we can begin to take responsibility for that inequality is to, is to like work for change. Right. And that action is sort of the medicine or the atonement, um, for whiteness. And, um, it's like the go get your cousins and it's like, put your body on the line. And, I'm curious for y'all, like, as you went through this kind of consciousness development, whether you then went on the journey of swinging into, like, full action um, and whether you're still in that place now, right? Um, But, yeah, how do you see that showing up of, like, oh, shit, we're white, we're associated with white supremacy, we're complicit, our job is to do something about it, and, like, how do you Mm -hmm. see that playing out? Yeah, for me, it was, um, the, you know, my immediate reaction as a white person, especially a white person who has a master's degree and, you know, went to UNC and studied social work was, what's the eight-week evidence-based program that I can implement <laughs> to eliminate racism? Oh and that, gosh. like, you know, it was like, give me the recipe, give me the formula. And my mentors um, at the Racial Equity Institute, Dina Hayes-Green and Suzanne Plissick were my first trainers. And and they really encouraged us to sit with the analysis. And they said, you know, um, I feel like I hear a lot from older people of color in the movement that there's um, there's kind of that go get your cousin thing. But in some sense, it's it, I love the way they held us. They said, you're not ready to go get get anyone yet you you just realized you were white five mm. seconds ago and they really just said you need to to start your journey you need to to commit you need to I and mean, we hope you will they didn't say it was very invitational it wasn't this um you better go do this it was this you know we invite you this is an invitation to a movement mm. and we hope you'll accept um and unfortunately i didn't heed their advice i decided that i was going to go back to my nonprofit and tell everyone how racist they were um this analogy that um i've heard used in movement spaces before that resonates with me is the jack in the box so like once you're aware about racism <laughs> it's like you're this jack in the box and the crank is turning all the time and it's like you hear the racist music of like and then like you kind of like pop out of your box eventually eventually in a meeting or something and you're like this is racist our nonprofit's racist i'm racist you're racist everybody's racist <laughs> and and then you get slammed back in the box Mm. And it's like super ineffective organizing. And I just kept popping out of the box all the time, trying to change everything in the institution on my own, which is very like white knight, savior, whatever. Um, And I got so burned out, like so burned out. I had to lay on a couch for a year. I was like suicidal. It was, it was awful. Um, And so, I don't know, I swung pretty hard on the pendulum. uh, Mm. And uh, I had a very similar reaction to you, Jardina, of just like feeling like, being white means that I need to to make myself smaller, not exist, um, or do that while simultaneously like fixing racism on my own. Um, mm. And uh, I think these last few years have of my life, 
um, have been kind of coming center again on that pendulum swing and um, connecting with people like you all who are figuring out how do we um, be white people that are simultaneously healing in the movement, um, but also not coddling ourselves to the point mm -hmm. of inaction. So I think that's like the balance I'm trying to strike right now in my life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hmm. You know, I, there was a student group that was on campus that just was the place of my beginning entry into this work. And it was a multiracial group group. It was called Students Together, Students Together Again, Against Racism, STAR. And so that was the beginning of my, you know, some of my activism around anti-racism, but it was in a very multiracial setting. And, and it had invited me to come to Louisville, Kentucky. I was, you know, graduating uh, and wanting to enter into a master's program. And she invited me to come to Louisville. Uh, and I, I, I came for a visit. It was during the time when Cornell West came to speak at the Unity Dinner for the organization that Anne had started called um, Kentucky Alliance Against Racism Political Repression. And I remember at that gathering, which had, I think, 500 plus people or something, and it was very multiracial, just being like, wow, this is the first time I've really been in like a space that's multiracial and also like talking about racism like together. Mm. And when I moved to Louisville in the, in the year that Anne had transitioned from this physical world, I was immediately invited in to her community, which was a very multiracial, like, organizing community. And, and so then in some ways it was, you know, Anne had given this, like, context for, like, my whiteness and also was a big proponent of, like, as a white person, it's your responsibility to work with other white people. Mm -hmm. And yet I hadn't quite, you know, opera, I haven't quite, hadn't quite operationalized, like, what does that really look like yet? And so when I was in Louisville doing organizing work, I was working really multiracially. Like, I wasn't working with white people. And I was doing a little bit of what you're talking about of, like, being the white person of, like, calling out, you know, yeah. at, in, in the times of, oh, that's, this is really racist. Um, and then, like, retreating to my, like, very multiracial, mostly people of color, like, organizing spaces. Uh -huh. uh, and, and folks just being like, oh, thank you for doing that. And, like, that's really great. And really distancing myself from other white people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And really distancing myself from my own whiteness, again, you know, in a different kind of way. And I think it was really when I started, you know, doing some intentional work around my own healing um and i found yoga in a deeper way and started doing more meditation and practice that i kind of came down from this pl this like place of high i think that we often live in the adrenaline and like mm -hmm. the activist organizing world and started to recognize oh i'm not really breathing yeah mm. like i'm not really i'm not really being with the complicated parts of like my whiteness still you know I'm, I'm running from the pain I'm like fixing it by avoiding it yeah in the action mm -hmm. of working in these multiracial spaces which I believe are really important to do but I hadn't mm -hmm. I was still not fully like in my whiteness and when I returned to my body in breathing in movement in you know, meditation and mantra and sound, you know, and all of that. Then I started to discover that everything that we really need, like, exists within our bodies mm -hmm. to heal the pain, to address the pain of what white supremacy has really taken from all of us in a different kind of way. Mm -hmm. And what that is is disconnection. It's disconnection from our bodies. It's disconnection from each other. It's disconnection from other white people. It's disconnection from people of color. And it has really extract, it really tears us away from belonging. Mm -hmm. And so when I returned to my body, I started to address my own humanity and like the complications of like what that was. Mm -hmm. And even in the, in the understanding of like beginning understanding of what whiteness was, like how I was still avoiding it. 
And so for me, returning to the body has been such a place to like go deeper into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it really strikes me hearing you say the word belonging, which is something that we've talked a bit about too. And um, it, it makes me think a lot about story and kind of some of the original challenges that I got as an organizer, like um, post political education phase. So like having learned the thing where you realize how uh, totally screwed up white supremacy is and the political consequences of that. And then um, I definitely went full on into like redeeming myself through action mode um, and uh, went like deep into the immigrant rights movement and um, was working in a community that did have other white people that were part of it, but was like vast majority directly affected um, folks, mostly Mexicans um, on the South side of Milwaukee. And um, one of the things that I did, like I was trained in Midwest Academy and in Marshall, in the dreamer movement, we used Marshall Ganz's like um, story of self all the time where you're constantly sharing your personal story. And that's been such a powerful tool in the dreamer movement of like people coming out as undocumented and sharing their stories. And for like four years, I was working with young people to like, coach and support the conditions for them to share their stories. Like I, I don't even know how many meetings I had with youth to like work on their speech of how they're going to tell their story and support them. And it wasn't until I went to a training with Carlos Saavedra, who ended up becoming like one of my mentors and friends and um, greatest teachers in this work, who really pushed me and confronted me on like, what is your story? Why are you here? And the first couple rounds of trying to explain it, all I had to offer was other people's stories mm-hmm. of like, oh, I'm here because I heard the stories on the south side of Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. And I feel this call of like, I can't be part of a generation that is complicit in treating immigrants this way. And he's like, okay, yeah, but like, what's your story? And I'm like, well, my story is that I volunteered on the border and I met you know, this young man who had just been deported and we realized we were the same age and I saw myself in his eyes and I was like, if I was born somewhere else, this could have been me. Like, what is different between us? It's only total luck of like why I have a warm home to go back to and why he's being deported and has nothing, you know? And then Carlos is like, that's great. Like, what is your story? (laughs) Um, and, And really like walked with me around the pain that actually... Um, includes and transcends the political distinctions and the the invention of race, right? Like the way that suffering is experienced uniquely, but is also so connective and really got me unearthing like, oh my gosh, like my story is about, um, you know, my dad being like physically and emotionally abusive when I was younger and the the deep fire that was like lit within me that said like I will not live in a world where unjust power goes unchecked Mm -hmm. like I I can't live with that reality personally not not for somebody else but like I like I my body cannot stand like that reality and that then like connecting with the immigrant rights movement gave me a way of connecting my own individual experience into a collective experience and saying like, whoa, like that thing that I felt about my own dignity, I can now feel about the dignity of other people, but that I have to be able to tell my own story of how I got here in order to be able to explain a a really valid question, which I was even asked at Mystic Soul this weekend, which is like, okay, why are you here? Like, if, you're, if your family members aren't being deported, why are you here? And um, I guess a question that I have or just something I'm holding is around, like, white folks uncovering our own stories. Yeah. And also the delicateness of that because there's such, a, um, there's such an important challenge around, like, white people not s- continuing to center ourselves. Mm. Um, and I feel like that's some of the tension that I get into with myself and with other white folks is, um, like, what is that balance of 
not centering ourselves, not being like, oh, my story is the point or my story is the center of this conversation, but then also not using that political analysis to create an excuse as to where we've actually totally disconnected from our own stories and are invisibilizing ourselves. So is that something that comes up for y'all in your work? Do you see it in yourselves? Do you see it in other people? What does that look like? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just talking recently with an organizer in Cincinnati, uh, Elizabeth Hopkins, who's a black woman who does a lot of organizing with white faith communities around um, justice stuff. And she's like, the hardest part is getting white people to realize that they live in pain too. Um, and I just really resonated with that. Like I, um, similar story to yours, like, you know, I had a very painful childhood, even though I had a lot of needs met because of white access to resources and wealth building. And um, I think a lot of like coming home for me has like been figuring out how to get in touch with that pain and the pain of what's been done to us. Um, and I think for a while I was hearing in my head that people of color like wouldn't want me to understand myself as being in pain or traumatized because it was very like either or thinking like either I'm in pain and suffering and I'm like a victim of what's going on or I'm like pure oppressor and I think a lot of healthy elders have said to me like it's just both you know like Mark Charles who's a Navajo organizer and the church talks a lot about like how he really wants white people to start understanding themselves as coming from a lineage of, of trauma. And he says, um, everything that's going on in white communities is symptoms of trauma. So there's like denial and dissociation. So we live in a racially constructed society and we don't even think about our race. Like that's some severe trauma dissociation. And um, like he goes through in his work, like all the different symptoms of trauma and how that's everything we see coming out in white communities. And he says, you cannot be a part of the dominant culture of 500 years of dehumanizing violence and come out unscathed. Mm -hmm. And so for me, a lot of it um, isn't necessarily that I bring my trauma work up in multiracial spaces, um, mm -hmm. although there's like sometimes been times of that, but it's what work am I going to be doing um, with other white people to collectively heal from what we've inflicted, what's been imposed on us, what we've lost, um, while simultaneously not letting go of knowing that I'm also advantaged by white supremacy and that those two things can be true at the same time. I'm advantaged and I'm traumatized and oppressed by the, the system. Mm. Mm -hmm. It makes me think also too, Kelly, about when, you know, the last um, practice showing up, spirituality and anti-racism, you know, course that we led and just how many people were coming with like, like an exhale, mm -hmm. like a, like an exhale breath of like, oh, I can just like talk about my pain, yeah. like in the space with all white people, like, because I think so often in our white anti-racism work, in or organizing work, there's not the space to talk about the pain. It's like, okay, let's get to the action, mm. you know, of dismantling. And and then there's this also this other thing that happens, and I'd love to hear your thoughts too on, on this, where folks are feeling like, oh, I can't be if I'm showing if I'm showing emotion, yeah. then I'm being white, a white fra a fragile yes. white person. Mm -hmm. And that that's not what I should be doing. Yeah. And I think, you know, in, in my work, in our work, you know, that, that we need to be in the emotions, like mm -hmm. we need to be in the emotionality and just what you said, where it's like that work doesn't necessarily need to happen like in multiracial spaces. Yeah. Like the first thing that came to my mind when you asked the question, Kate, is practice. You have to have a practice to go inward mm -hmm. into, the, into the pain and to allow the emotion to arise because the feeling brings us back into our bodies, which is about resisting mm -hmm. white supremacy and what patriarchy and heterosexism and all the other, you know, systems of oppression want to take us away from. Yeah. But I, I would love just to hear more about what you think too, Kelly, mm -hmm. and you too, Kate, around like what this white fragility, because yeah. people mm -hmm. really, that like, I feel like white people especially just really take that as like, oh, I can't be emotional. Yes. Mm -hmm. I think that's so back to that either or thinking again that we're so plagued with in white supremacy because the first time 
you know, I ran out of room crying as a white woman. Um, it was like, you know, called out as white lady tears. And I learned about what white lady tears are and um, how they're used to distract from the conversation on racism. Sometimes we do that subconsciously. And so my brain, I went to this place of, I can never cry in organizing spaces, mm -hmm. which is so either or. And then um, I just connected white fragility with emotion and then felt like I needed to turn that part off of myself. Mm. Um, and I think it's so dangerous because a lot of what holds white supremacy in place is that we're not in touch with our bodies and our emotions. And so, I don't know, I, I have like a really messy relationship with the concept of white fragility and particularly how I think sexism shows up and how we tend to think of it. Cause mm -hmm. then like oftentimes like people who are socialized, identified as male, aren't seen as being fragile in this work, even though mm -hmm. they're stuck in hyper intellectual places, which is mm -hmm. actually sometimes more fragile or damaging or maybe just a different version of fragile and damaging and so um mm -hmm. i don't know i just feel like we really have to as white people have a like fleshing out of what white fragility really looks like mm -hmm. for different people for our collective that isn't and and also can connect with white people and saying it doesn't mean you don't process your pain and trauma and emotion i don't know yeah I'm so glad you brought up that term because, like, I I feel like white fragility is kind of the the activist meme around whiteness that I understand the least, um, and maybe not understand the least, but maybe I'm the most opposed to, <laughs> because of what you're saying. Like, it it feels like a total um, patriarchal piece to me. Yeah. Of like, you should be able to receive a correction and intellectually implement that, like, without processing it through your body and your emotions just feels to me like the total replication of whiteness. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and I think maybe a more accurate way of putting it, because there is something underneath that's so important, what you're saying too, is that like not every space is a space that can hold it. Mm -hmm. And so then the question becomes like, where can we get our needs met? Mm -hmm. Right. And that it's really an okay thing to say, like if we were at Mystic Soul this weekend in a people of color centered space and there were moments where white people heard pieces of information or were integrating stories and like actually really needed support, emotional, spiritual, even intellectual understanding support around like, oh, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for the work? And that instead of negating that need, it's our job to say, oh, like there is actually a place where you can get that need met. And it's okay that it's not in the middle of the people of color centered space. Like this isn't a space that can support Kelly, when you were crying, like maybe in this moment, this room can't yeah. support that, exactly. but that we do believe that it should be supported. And like, here's where you can go. And so, so one of the things that's really impacted me about your work, Yardena, and, and also what we've done within Liberation School is like creating healing spaces for white folks um, that are not I mean, I've also attended a lot of white caucus spaces that are about like all the white people getting together and being and like calling each other out for like the ways that we're making mistakes in the mm. multiracial space, which is an important co-education of like we need to help one another realize the things that we haven't seen, but have not been a place of care and restoration. And so when I first heard of your work, Yardena, and the fact that you were talking about white people ancestral healing. I was like, do we even get to say that we've had ancestors? Like our ancestor piece feels very complicated. And I'm I'm curious, I feel like that the healing of the of or the other side of the coin of like the fragility accusation is this going deeper and like what is happening at the root that people need support on. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious to hear like what does ancestral healing mean and what is the specific about that for white folks? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I feel like ancestral healing is like the key, <laughs> the key to to returning to our humanity in many ways. Um, yes, because it's about facing our history and facing ourselves, and it's about being with the pain. But it's also like we're in a, mo I mean, our lives, our moment, this present moment. It can be healing for the past and the future if we go there. And so for me, it's like 
going into, yeah, I'm absolutely like knowing, knowing what your family is and knowing what the culture is of, of your family. I think for white people feel like we don't have a culture or mm-hmm. like what is white culture? And, and so white people like step into this place of like, oh, I belong everywhere. And yet I belong nowhere. Cause I really don't understand myself or like <laughs> where I come from, you know? Yeah. And, um, so it is like about knowing like your family and your, and your stories and, um, and kind of going deeper. But for me, it's also a deeply spiritual experience that is felt when you can get into a place of really sitting with yourself and sitting with the thing we were talking about earlier, you know, sitting with when I got into my body and I was like really sitting with the pain of my whiteness and what my whiteness represents and also the real pain I've caused people that I love. Mm. You know, whether that's other white people or whether that's people of color. When I can sit with that and, and go deeper into that, you know, through meditation, through journaling, I can feel the deep connection of healing um, beyond myself. And it's almost like it's linking us back together. When I go into that pain, I find liberation and I find the connection. I find a place where I belong and I also find a place where where we belong together and where we're part of something together and that we're all important to it while we're all important to building this future that we need. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think ancestral healing is about going deeper into where we come from and returning to the embodiment of interconnect interconnection which intellectually you know and scientifically like makes sense and we can prove all of it and for me it's a spiritual feeling that we have to go into to really feel interconnected to really feel that with the earth and with each other Um, And that requires a deep dive into history and our personal histories and also the dream history, you know, the, the imagining, like the imagination. Adrienne Marie Brown talks about this so much and Robin Kelly and, you know, many black intellectuals and spiritual folks, you know, about the radical imagination. Mm -hmm. And for me, that is the imagination is the, is a deep, a, a, I mean, it's just a deep calling up for us to step into that place, to imagine something different, but also to imagine and connect to where we've come from. Mm-hmm. And like, what were the conditions and what were the, the choices that our ancestors made and why? And I also think about, you know, my history teacher, Miss Wells, asking when we went through the section uh, around in talking about the history of slavery and she looked she was a black woman looking around to all the white students in the room and she said well what would you really have done if everyone around you had a slave you know and had slaves and was treating people wrong what would you have really done if you can place yourself in the history of that what would you really have done and that you know, deeply impacted me. And I think there's a way for us to go deep into the imagination and deep into our bodies and explore that question by connecting to our ancestors of like, what were the conditions that people were making decisions within? And then also connecting that to now and like the choices that we make mm-hmm. and how we show up and make mm-hmm. decisions. I mean, if no one else is doing it, you know, if no one else is like speaking up in a room that, you know, obviously something's happening, you know, are we going to speak up or not? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are we going to change something or not? And I mean, I think we can, we can just see that in this, like in the Me Too movement right now, right? Like for so long, we as women and as, you know, feminine femmes and you know, have been experiencing violence mm-hmm. and, and it's been acceptable mm-hmm. because it just is. 
you know? And it's not that people haven't been talking out, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm recalling someone who came into spiritual care at Mystic Soul today and a lot of different people who are having some, you know, the non-people of color coming into space that were having things come up for them. And, and just this feeling of like, you know, f- saying something over and over and over again. And it's like, mm-hmm. especially for, for women, you know, and I think for people of color, it's just like saying it over and over and over again. And it's just like, you just get tired of saying it, mm-hmm. you know? And then how do we break out of that? Mm-hmm. You know, how do we individually and collectively break out of that? And I, I feel like a lot of it has to do with, with going deep within ourselves and then connecting to each other on a, on a deep emotional level to help weave a different way. Mm-hmm. As promised, this is our first community affirmation interlude on the podcast. I'm going to demo one this week, and I'm excited to bring in your voices starting next week. So this week, the affirmation that I want to share is for Movimiento Cosecha, a group of folks that are fighting for dignity and protection for all immigrants in the United States. And just thinking about this week, all that's been going on over the past couple of months with DACA, with TPS, with so many struggles that the immigrant community has been facing, the amount of incredible leadership and resilience of folks in the immigrant rights movement to continue to lead forward and also to take care of themselves and each other. And specifically, I wanna shout out Daish and Kata for being folks who really are grappling with your own needs, the needs of your community, trying to take so much responsibility. And also I see you having so much joy and being so silly and fun and just living. And so thank you for being embodiments of healing justice that inspire us and by sharing your suffering and also by sharing your resilience, um, you help all of us be more human. So thank you. All right, y'all. So that was our first community shout out. It could be your voice on the podcast next week. If you go to our website, healingjustice.org, and click in the upper right the button to submit an affirmation, um, you can make a donation. And instead of advertising that sells you something, we are using these slots to actually lift one another up and celebrate the incredible people in our communities that are embodying this work. All right back to the conversation. And so I'm hearing some here about like um, imagination, right? And like self-inquiry around the conditions and how we make decisions and what that applies, how that applies to now, which also is a historical moment where we have serious decisions to make. And I'm curious too, like when you talk about the ancestral piece does that also mean like researching your actual ancestors and like like how tactical are you speaking and how kind of spiritual imaginative are you speaking, right? Just for those of us trying to get a picture of like, oh, I want to do that. What do I do? Yeah. <laughs> um, is, are, yeah. Are, are there pieces that are like fact and investigation based or is it mostly imaginative? What, mm-hmm. what are some of your like uh, specific experiences in doing the ancestor stuff? There's two that come to mind for me. One um, is like the more kind of collectively what's happened to us as white people. So Mm. kind of, and then there's like the what's happened to like my specific lineage. So for me collectively, it's been really helpful, like kind of to have the imagination that your history teacher, Yardina, was talking about of like going back in time to say, when did white people become white? Who made up the term white? Why did they make it up? Like, what was going on with our ancestors at that time? And, like, to me, I had no idea that whiteness was created to bust up 
like solidarity between and mm-hmm. like people who are oppressed across like different places on the planet coming together and and rising up against the ruling class and when I started to realize that this was like a kind of um, military tactic <laughs> that mm-hmm. whiteness is mm-hmm. is to like confuse us and create this like imaginary um, specious kind of classification to keep us out of solidarity with people of color that was really healing for me to start to say okay well when did that happen like how like how did that roll out you know what was going on for people as they were being socialized into the to the term of whiteness and the you know both the advantages given but also like the pain and fear around like oh like there were people that actually went back said when they came back and saw what you had to give up to become white it's like you have to give up like pretty much all of your culture. You can keep like a couple recipes, stop mm-hmm. dancing, stop doing this stuff and become white and you'll get like a little land and some money and a musket for it. Like just like that's like a horrible spiritual deal. Um, but our people like did it to survive it. But a lot of our people turned back and said, no way. Um, and so to me, it's like going collectively to that story. And I think a lot of us who are white don't really know the nuances of what happened to us mm-hmm. and I think for like from like a trauma place it's like we kind of need to know what happened to us um, and then for me personally tactically specific lineage like I was able to you know because white people we can trace our ancestry pretty most of the time and um, for me to there was actually a book that like my people um, so I'm like third generation Swiss American and I was able to like trace like what my people had written down as they came here why they came here Mm. all that stuff and I'm sure like you know I also have ancestors that are from England and I think that's the messed up part is like we're both coming from lineages of people who came here to colonize as well as lineages of people who came here because they were also being you know beaten and whipped and lynched and persecuted and um, so to me the like messiness of of figuring out where your ancestors have come here like why did they come what was their imagination and their mind and the narrative and um, you know what were they told about native people that they were gonna uh, how are they gonna understand them how are they gonna understand people um, who were labeled as like negro people and um, and I think those stories like kind of I heard one pastor in our workshop um, practice showing up to call it this like excavation process um, that's like really complicated and nuanced that has been um, helpful for me both collectively and kind of like individually. Mm-hmm. Yeah I just want to I'm going to say like I think for me going into the, like the spiritual or the imagination and connecting to the lineage lines in that way has been like really key because you know when you come from a family with so much violence abuse alcoholism Mm. etc sometimes like the actual like family can be like Mm. like the collective memory of it like we don't have a book per se yeah you know and I'm like completely um estranged from my my father's side Mm -hmm. of the family because of like abuse and alcoholism and just don't have those ties anymore of which you know I understand are very very much has to do I mean addiction and trauma I mean so tied up with with oppression you know and have more access to my mother's side of the family um but what I was really struck by when I did my ancestry you know doc when I did like ancestry.com you know was how how little percentage I am of Italian which like the dominant story because it's mostly my mother's side that we know about you know, was that we were just Italian, you know? <laughs> but it really was, like, 15%. <laughs> and then there was, like, this huge percentage of, like, Irish, Welsh, Scotch, um, and some English, and, you know, I think, like, some Moroccan, like, down, further down. And uh, and I was really struck by that. And I was recalling when I, you know, I think, I don't know how many years ago, I went to Wales and how I felt such a home there. Mm-hmm. Like, that feeling of, yeah. like, wow, like, I've never been here. I didn't really know much about this place. But, like, that settling in your body of, like, I feel like I don't want to leave, mm. you know? And so I do know that there's, you know, now that that's actually really a part of my ancestry. And I I do tactically, like, want to even go deeper and understand that. And I think also because I have two kids, 
and it was really interesting because because both the kids have orange hair. Yes, <laughs> and, they do. And the parents of these children have dark hair. You know, we have dark hair. And so it was like, what, where did this orange hair come from? You know? <laughs> it's like bright orange. <laughs> yeah. And so come to find out it was from their great grandfathers, you know, who are, you know, have this Irish, Scotch, Welsh um, heritage. And so I think also just having kids also helps you like want to know, like, where do, what can I tell my kids, you know, and how can I raise white kids in a way that's like anti-racist and, and for me, you know, for me, that really has a lot to do with how can they know about their culture and how mm. can they be like excited about that yeah. and not experience the same thing as I did of like, oh, what is my culture or like knowing just like a fragment of what that is and that even not really being the full and whole picture of it. Mm -hmm. I, I really appreciate how you've uplifted like, I mean, I think the complexity of the imagination piece around things that have been lost or things that are traumatizing in our immediate history. And then also the individual and collective. Mm -hmm. Because it's one an experience I had last year. I live in New York and when my mom and sister came out to visit me, we did like the whole like Statue of Liberty, Ellis Island shebang. Um, and I went in with like a bunch of information that I've gathered from my grandmother and all these things. And, uh, it wasn't until I was going through the museum. It was like, oh, I kind of know when we came over from Germany about five generations ago and I have names of people. And it wasn't until I walked through the museum that I realized that like I had this image in my head of us coming through Ellis Island and all these certain things happening and I started to put together a timeline and realize like, oh, okay, so we actually came in a year before Ellis Island was built. So that image I had was like not the right story. And then also we came after slavery was abolished and we moved straight to the north. And I've always had this mythology in my head as a white person of like, oh my God, like my ancestors owned slaves. This is the lineage that I'm part yeah. of. And it was a really interesting thing for me to realize just in a material, factual, chronological way, that actually wasn't true yeah. for my bloodline. And I am not not part of that either. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I am not absolved from that. I'm not like, oh, thank God, I'm off the hook. Like, we came <laughs> yeah. later. Oh, <laughs> woo. But, like, then there is a little bit of a relief to that, at least, in the, at least in the sense that I think having a little bit of personal history, like, just complexifies this... Um, this really immobilized trauma block that is whiteness. Yeah. And to be like, oh, there's actually a lot of really different complex stories within this whiteness thing. And I'm still complicit in the whiteness thing, even though my blood came at XYZ year. Right? Yeah. And so I, I appreciate like thinking about what is our what is the collective mm -hmm. history and the collective mythology in a, in addition to the personal history. Yeah. And 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 that kind of brings me to the last thing I want to ask about, which is about grief which is something that we've been really, we just held recently in a, in a liberation school space that was like a white healing space. Um, and maybe as a way of deepening the conversation about like reaction and fragility, just what is the role of grief and even of identifying like what have we lost mm -hmm. um, as a function of whiteness that can resource us in powerful ways to show up to take responsibility for dismantling white supremacy and maybe anything you want to share about maybe grief is part of it or or maybe there are other things you would add about really the depth of work you're trying to do with white folks mm -hmm. which i know is motivated in order to make us be able to show up in a real co-liberatory way right it's like what are some of those deeper needs and deeper works that you're attuning to with white people um, I think for me, as of late, a lot of what I've been hearing from my mentors of color is about getting, moving white people collectively, especially my work is in the church a lot. Um, so it's like kind of spiritually moving white people to be more in touch with the depth of the injury that's happened to us and to people of color on the soil. Um, because it's like one thing to intellectually start to understand it, um, but the fact, um, you know, my, the director of uh, REI where I work often talks about, she's like, you know, I just think when white people really get in touch with the depth of what's been done in their name, they'll be inconsolable for a period of time, like just weeping. And 
uh, Mark Charles and Soon John Ra are, are coming out with a book this year called Truth Be Told. And it's all this truth that's going to like, you know, set us free, but that um, uh, had, is not told. Mm. And, um, and so, and, you know, biblically speaking from a Christian perspective, you can't really move to healing or reconciliation or res restoration or transformation or whatever we want to call it until we've been able to be in touch with the depth of the injury, the like kind of more root of what's going on um, in the church. We call it this period of lament. Mm -hmm. um, and um, what Soon John Ra talks about in his book, Prophetic Lament, is that um, most of our churches in the United States don't practice lament anymore. They constantly practice celebration. And so they sing songs of joy and hope and peace. Um, and that in the Bible, like, you know, 40% of the Psalms or something like that mm -hmm. are Psalms of lamenting and just crying out to God and saying, like, we can't fix this. We need you to intervene. And so I think from a spiritual perspective for me, um, as white people, it's really dangerous when we just move mm. from like awareness to like action and we don't constantly cycle back through, as you were saying, Kate, like this like grief, lament, um, this like going deeper. Um, and so that's the kind of work that I want to do with white people, not to get stuck there. I think that's always people's fears. Like if I lament and grieve, then mm. like this is just about darkness and hopelessness. Like that's the biggest critique people talking about lament get. Um, and prophets in the church today get is that we're just talking about darkness and not hope and light. And really, I think at this point in history, it's like, you know, calling people to say, sometimes we need to like sit in the darkness and despair a little bit um, in order to get the gifts of, of hope and light. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think about spiritual bypassing. Yeah. It's like the, how we... And I think as, you know, as white people, I mean, I think sometimes we move to the action so quickly because it's the solution to the, it's the quote unquote solution to the problem, you know, like, oh, how can I eradicate this immediately? How can I move myself out of this immediately? And I think, you know, in like our relationship too, to, to Kelly and our relationship, Kate, you know, I think our relationship has grown through the years, like in part because we've been able to sit with each other and like the challenges mm -hmm. that we've had with each other. Yeah. And the challenges of like what it means to be like working in, I mean, working in the world, but also like working with other white people and also working in multiracial spaces as white people. And like in part, that's been about grieving and like really sharing with each other like the pain. Um, and getting to that place that feels like really soft and vulnerable, but is like so true and necessary to be able to like fertilize any kind of soil of something that can grow mm. into something different, you know? Mm -hmm. So for me, grieving is like absolutely key. And it also speaks to a cycle of how we can move in a different kind of way. Yeah. That's not just about the up. It's not just about, you know, moving from the trigger and moving from and moving in this place of adrenaline and the go, 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 go and the give up and the give everything, etc. Mm. It's like a grounding. It's like a place of grounding in and and what, what we can do with the grief, what we can do with the, the softness, what we can do with the pause is the very thing that I believe we need more of. You know, because that is what helps us then deepen. Mm. And then it informs the action and the strategy in a different kind of way, too. Mm -hmm. And it deepens our relationships, which are the very thing that has been severed. Our relationships with ourselves, yeah. our relationships with the earth, our relationships with each other. It's the very thing that white supremacy severs. Mm -hmm. And so in a reclamation of returning interconnection and to belong to each other and to belong to ourselves and to belong on this planet and to really be, you know, live in, in a more sacred humanness than the full range of like what, what our lineage is and, and what ourselves as like people walking and moving in this world have like the pain that we've caused and the pain that we feel. You know, and I think also in this political moment so much, like we have to grieve. We have to grieve what we've lost yeah. 
yeah. and not to stay in that place. But that is such it's such a, a such a, an important part of our transformative journeys as yeah. white anti-racists. Mm. Well, I know that you two are going to share a practice with us that is specifically geared towards supporting white folks in some of this work. Can you give us just a little preview of what that'll be about? Yes. So it's an ancestral healing practice that you will need um, a space that hopefully isn't too loud, or if it is, that you can just like tunnel in a little bit to yourself and some writing materials, preferably a piece of paper and a pen or something. So you can download the next episode um, to do an ancestral healing practice for white folks with Yardena and Kelly. Um, And if you're listening to this right when it comes out on Tuesday, our practices are always released on Thursday. So you can watch for that to post this Thursday. Um, And I just really want to thank you both for the work that you're doing and the ways that you're talking about a, a deep, a deep showing up and integration for white people who are committed to anti-racism and that your example of that has really changed me mm-hmm. and helped me be able to deepen in my own work. Um, and also the ways in which uh, you're champions of white people loving each other <laughs> mm-hmm. and not, uh, not kind of just jumping to the politic of wanting to perform who's the most anti-racist and throwing each other under the bus and critiquing one another and abandoning each other and and replicating that uh, separation and individualism and competition that white supremacy upholds in the way we treat each other in activist space. And so I want to just say that um, I love both of you and that I'm committed to both of you and, uh, may we continue to support each other to grow Mm -hmm. in the journey as white folks deeply committed to giving ourselves to the work of anti-racism. So thanks for being here. Yes, Kate, thanks for bringing up love. Cause like, (laughs) as you were starting to talk, I was closing it out. I was like, oh, but we didn't talk enough about love. (laughs) We gotta say so much more about love. So much more. Yeah. Thank you so much for this. And I love you. Yes, thank you so much for the space and for hosting us and You just heard a conversation between Kate Werning, Kelly Germain Strickland, and Yardena Peacock. You can download the corresponding practice, which is always released on Thursdays, to hear Yardena and Kelly guide you through an ancestral healing practice. This is focused on white ancestry, but it really can be used by anyone. And it involves meditation and writing. It has been a powerful one for me to practice, so I hope that it serves you too. And if you want to work further with Yardena and Kelly, this work is not short, so we need these communities to be able to dive in deeper. And you can check out their virtual course that's beginning February 20th called Practice Showing Up, Anti-Racist Spirituality for White People. You can grab that link in the show notes. And as always, you can also contribute and support us at patreon.com slash healingjustice. The links are always in the show notes so that you can find our email list and our social media. So stay in touch. We share some pretty gorgeous stuff on social media every single day. So don't miss out. And this podcast is generously mixed and produced by Zach Meyer at The Coal Room. And thank you for being here with us and your commitment to building movements that liberate all of us. Hear you next week.